give us strength to live for him in this world. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in Daniel 8, we have another vision to consider. The timing of this vision is the same as the four deformed beasts in Daniel 7 that we considered last week. Both visions came to Daniel in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. In fact, verse 1 says that the vision in Daniel 8 took place right after the vision of Daniel 7. And so the two visions together contribute to this larger shift in tone that characterizes the second half of the book of Daniel, where things get strange. Beginning in Daniel 7, the remaining chapters contain cautionary tales for Christians living in a world that's deeply broken and governed by the ungodly. The content of chapters 7 through 12 is distinctly different from the neat narratives of the first six chapters where the godly are vindicated and the righteous rewarded. But the second half of Daniel makes it clear that it doesn't always work this way in the world. As one scholar explains, the difference of ethos in the two parts of Daniel does not come from contradictory worldviews. Rather, it represents two ends of the spectrum of the experience of the godly living in a pagan society. Sometimes it's possible to be both faithful to one's principles and fully involved in the society. At other times, the society can be so hostile that the principles are trampled upon and the godly may be crushed. Well, chapters 7 through 12 tell the stories of when the godly are crushed under the weight of this world. The vision in Daniel 8 begs the question that's often asked by the godly when they are weary from the trials of this world. And that question is, how long, O Lord? How long? This question is echoed throughout the Psalter. Psalm 13 asks, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 79 and 89 ask the same question. How long, O Lord? The first words out of the prophet Habakkuk's mouth in the book that bears his name are, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help and you will not listen? Even the saints who have died and wait expectantly in the heavens for God to finally bring to an end the history of this broken world as we know it can be heard crying out in Revelation 6, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? The church throughout all of time has experienced the miseries of this broken world in our broken bodies and has constantly cried out, how long, O Lord? The occasion for the question has always been different, but the question is always the same. How long do we have to put up with this? And the occasion for the question in Daniel 8 is the reign of the king described as the little horn in verses 9 through 11. Another horn arose. It reads, a little one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and it trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of princes. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. In apocalyptic language, this 
this king is described as disrupting the balance of the universe. His power spanned the earth. His reach stretched even into the heavens where he plucked stars out of the sky and trampled on them. For those living under his reign of terror, this king felt ultimate and eternal. There was only him and nothing else. History felt like it was coming to an inglorious end. And this may sound a bit dramatic, but that is almost certainly how God's people felt when they found themselves living under the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes. Scholars are almost in universal agreement that this little horn described in verses 9 through 11 is referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of the Seleucid Empire, an empire of ancient Greece. In Daniel 7, we said that the historical reference for the four deformed beasts climbing out of the sea could be determined through educated guesses, but that the meaning of the vision was not dependent upon our ability to match the beast with its corresponding historical kingdom. If it was, you would expect the text to help us out a bit more, perhaps even provide a name or two. But it doesn't, because the meaning of the vision in Daniel 7 does not depend on whether the four-headed leopard represents Persia or the Greeks. In chapter 8, however, the meaning of the vision does depend on our ability to match the animal with its corresponding historical reference so that we might understand what they are experiencing. And so we find the text not leaving us with our own educated guesses, as it did in Daniel 7, but providing us with an interpretation in verses 18 to 26. In verse 20, we are told that the ram Daniel saw standing beside the river in verse 3 represents the joint kingdom of Media and Persia. One of the ram's horns was said to be longer than the other in verse 3, but that's because that although Media and Persia were a joint kingdom, Persia was the more powerful of the two, larger. It was the Persian king, Cyrus, who had accomplished the unification of these two kingdoms, and he led them in victory after victory across the ancient Near Eastern world. The statement in verse 4 that no one could rescue from his power and that he did as he pleased and became strong rightly described the king who conquered modern-day Turkey, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, and Iran. But after a while, a goat with a horn between its eyes, almost like a unicorn, you might call it a unigoat, came out of nowhere from the west. In verse 7, we are told that it struck the ram, breaking its two horns. The ram did not have power to withstand it. The goat threw the ram down to the ground and trampled upon it. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from its power. And then the male goat grew exceedingly great. Who was this unigoat? Verse 21 informs us that the goat represents Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king. This was none other than Alexander the Great, the king of of Macedonia, a, a precursor to the Greek Empire. And the description of the goat coming from the west without ever touching the ground describes perfectly the ease with which Alexander the Great conquered from Turkey to the border of India. He was known as the Great for a reason. But his reign was not, dra- was not just great, it was also brief. Perhaps we should call him Alexander the Brief. At just 32 years old, Alexander the Brief mysteriously died. 
But before his death, he divided his vast kingdom amongst his four generals, the four horns described in verse 8 as coming up in his place. And one of those generals, one of the four horns, was a man named Seleucus. And in about 198 BC, the Seleucid dynasty gained control of Israel, the glorious land as it was described in verse 9. One scholar writes, it was then that the time of terrible trouble for the Jews began. It was then that the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, came to power over the Seleucid Empire. One scholar explains that Antiochus Epiphanes acted with incredible hostility, hatred, and arrogance toward the Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding region. He became indeed for God's people at that time the very embodiment of blasphemous evil and the cause of enormous and prolonged suffering and and oppression. The book of 1 Maccabees, which is included in the Apocrypha, recounts the evil of Antiochus Epiphanes. By now, the temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt when he came to power. And 1 Maccabees tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple and destroyed God's people. He sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, 1 Maccabees tells us. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the temple, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the temple and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, and to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances." He explicitly demanded that God's people act in ways that would violate their consciences and compromise their faithfulness to God. And he enforced his demands with vicious thoroughness. He appointed inspectors to go from house to house within Jerusalem to expose those who refused to comply and put them to death. Any Bibles that were found were torn to pieces and then burned and the owners were murdered. Any mother who had her child circumcised was hung along with her child. You can see now why Antiochus Epiphanes is described in the way that he is in verse 9, can't you? As one who is so powerful that he could tear stars out of the sky if he wanted. For those living under his reign of terror, this king felt ultimate and eternal. There was only him and nothing else. History felt like it was coming to an inglorious end. This wasn't dramatic. This was real. And so they joined their voices to the saints who have forever been asking, how long, O Lord? When will injustice end? And they're given an answer, albeit a puzzling one in verse 14. The question is, how long will Antiochus Epiphanes be permitted to torment your people and defile your temple? And in verse 14, the answer is, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. As one scholar writes, attempts to find an exact chronological and historical significance for the number 2,300 have failed to provide any convincing solution. It's probably a number for a short, significant period. The question, therefore, is how long, and the answer is soon enough. There's no real timeline that's offered, only an assurance that Antiochus Epiphanes isn't 
eternal. He shall be broken, as verse 25 assures Daniel, and it won't be by human hands who will break him. It will be God who will intervene in history and bring an end to the terror that human kings pour out on his people. God will answer his people and he will establish justice in this world, reigning over us like the just and powerful king we all want. But for Daniel, this vision of suffering followed by judgment still lay off in the future. When Daniel received this vision, remember Belshazzar was still on the throne and Babylon was still in power. He would have to live through the reigns of Media and Persia even before Alexander the Great, his four generals, or Antiochus Epiphanes would arrive on the scene. In chapter 8, Daniel is told twice that this vision was referring to, to the end. In verse 17, the angel Gabriel tells him, Understand, O mortal, that the vision is for the time of the end. And in verses 19 and 20, Gabriel tells him, Listen, and I'll tell you what will take place later in the period of wrath, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. This vision was intended to prepare Daniel for the end, which was still to come. The end would be characterized by extreme suffering for the saints, followed by the ultimate vindication of God. But what is the end? In American Christianity, we have typically heard the words the end, and we immediately think about the end, right? The end of time when Jesus will return and create a new beginning on this earth. But the vision in Daniel is not talking about that end. It is talking about an end, but not the end. And so it would be mistaken to try to calculate from the vision in Daniel 8 the precise timeline of Jesus' return. Many have tried, and all have failed, because that's not the point. The point is not to predict, but to prepare the saints for what to expect in this life. There have been and will be many endings in the course of human history. As our New Testament passage said, there have been and will be many antichrists, people violently opposed to Jesus Christ in the course of human history. The trial under Antiochus Epiphanes was just one of many. Whether the end is just around the corner is not for us to know. Rather, one thing is clear, and a scholar explains this better than I can. All of these ends are previews and prefigurations of the ultimate end when the powers of evil reach their worst. They are signposts reminding us that there will be times when evil appears to triumph and such triumph will someday reach its final peak and will then be finally and forever destroyed by the power of God alone. In other words, our experience of, of hostility as Christians in this world builds perseverance and character within us so that we may be able to endure to the end of either our lives or of this world. But if we're being honest, we've never really experienced persecution for our Christian faith in this country, at least not at the Antiochus Epiphanes level, something for which we should be grateful. But we must also recognize that our skin has become consequently thin and our discipline weak. In our comfort, there are other narratives that have displaced the gospel in our bones, narratives of, of passion and self-fulfillment, riches and fame, ease and comfort. Our faith lacks grit. We're easily overcome and defeated by the mere hint of inconvenience or opposition. 
We settle into fear and despondency, repeating the same ominous predictions of what might be coming. But we do not take these visions into our heads as Daniel did, as opportunities to inspire discipline and cultivate prayer. We get knocked down, but we never get back up again. It's understandable to get knocked down. Daniel was overcome too. In fact, verse 27 says that he was so overcome by the vision of what was going to come in the future that he was laid up sick for several days at the mere thought of what Antiochus Epiphanes was going to do to God's people in in the future. But verse 27 says that after several days he arose and he went about the king's business. He did not allow his vision of the future, which was full of fear, to prevent him from acting with purpose and faithfulness in the present. He was preparing himself for the end so that he might endure whatever comes and be found in Christ still. You know, we're now nine days from an election in which everyone fears the outcome regardless of who wins. Visions of doom and disappointment dance in our heads. Each party is billing us as the most important election in the history of our country. The future is uncertain as our country seems to be coming apart at the seams and we seem to have lost all ability to listen to anyone who doesn't say things that we agree with. This is not even to mention the global pandemic that appears to be poised to thrive in the colder weather. It's an overwhelming time. And it's understandable that these visions of the future have you laid up in bed exhausted. But as Christians, we have to get up as well and go about the king's business. For regardless of who you vote for next Tuesday, we worship a king who's preparing us to endure. And he has told us the end in the middle of the story. The end is that he wins. Because he already won through the cross and in the resurrection. And he promises to make us victorious when he comes in the end to make all things good. No ruler of this world can take that victory from us. So let us not be found in bed lying overwhelmed. Let us not be divided. But let us be found about the business of our king in this world worshiping with the saints, using what power we have to help the powerless, practicing death by engaging in the spiritual disciplines, praying at all times, visiting the sick, writing letters to the lonely, teaching our children the gospel and preparing them, even them to endure to the end. Earthly kings and kingdoms will come and go, but we worship a king who lives and will reign forever. Let us be about his work in this world and in him find our peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.